0: Man, how awesome is that, huh? One of my favorite things is when we get to see the work of God in someone's life, a particular individual, right? Like sometimes our church world experience can be just this sort of big mass of people, humans all kind of moving together. But like it's super special to me when you get to see one individual express their faith, express this is how God found me, how he drew me to himself. And how now I realize that everything in life is actually all about Jesus. And in fact, I want my whole life to be about and for Jesus. And I want everybody to know about that. And man, so I'm just jazzed every time we get to start off one of our services celebrating what God has done through baptism. You know, when God brings us to himself, it is way less like When you join a club like Costco, I don't know if you've thought about this in this exact term, but it's not really like joining Costco or it's not like signing up for an Amazon account. Like when you decide to follow Jesus, it's like going from being spiritually dead to being alive. Filled with vitality and able to use all of your senses to interact with God and his purpose and plan for you in this world. Man, that is just wonderful that we get to celebrate that together. My name is Tim Griesbach and I get the incredible privilege of being one of our pastors here at Crossroads Church I get to be responsible for a lot of the different ways that we kind of organize our weekend gatherings like this, church services, when we come together to meet with God together. And then occasionally I get the opportunity to also preach, to lead us together, to meet with God in the context of his word and to uh, bend our hearts and really bow our hearts before him as king and letting him call the shots In our lives. And man, it's incredible to me to look back at my life and see how so much of what I've experienced has been aiming at where I'm at just today in getting to be a pastor here at Crossroads. When I was born, I was born into a family. I was the eldest of three and so I was born first. (laughs) And my mom and dad both loved Jesus before I even showed up on the scene. And so right from the get-go, I had this incredible advantage in life where at three years old, they were telling me about Jesus and about God and about heaven and about being with him, about sin, about forgiveness and all that. And I was like, yes, please, that sounds awesome. I was involved in church a ton. I mean, in my younger years, I was there at least once, maybe twice or three times a week, just involved in different activities. One of the activities I was involved in as a kid was called junior Bible quiz. Does anybody know anything about like junior Bible quiz? Cool, same as the first service, no one. Excellent, so junior Bible quiz was this funny Sunday morning, like while Sunday school's happening thing where they would get a bunch of the really nerdy kids like me who loved the Bible and who wanted to learn about it and like memorize it to compete against each other in ruthless competitions of Bible trivia. And we actually had these suitcases that were full. So you'd open up the suitcase and it had all these paddles that were in it and you would like spread it out and you'd have a team of like four or five against four or five and you had these predetermined questions that you could get in in advance and study them up and memorizing certain parts called quotation questions and all this stuff, right? So for Points. And so the person that's sort of leading the experience would ask a question and then a the kid would hit the buzzer Hopefully before someone on the other team hit the buzzer and you'd be able to answer the question as best you could and get it right This was a part of my experience. I huh? know. So you guys clearly missed out on some fantastic 90s kids church things I don't know what to tell you But this is just part of what is in my story. When I got to about 7th or 8th grade, I realized That up until that point, I was mostly living off of the faith that my parents had kind of given me. Like they had introduced me to Jesus and told me what it looked like to follow Jesus. But it wasn't until around seventh or eighth grade that I realized for myself, like, oh, like I, I want to follow you with my own faith, with my own expression of belief. With my own, like, I am just going to chase after you, God, and let you be the singular focus in my life to the best of my ability. And I would do silly things like, man, these are more 90s things that some of you probably don't even remember. So like early on, do you remember email? You know email. Of course you know email because we still use it, thank goodness. So do you remember the email things that you would get where it would be like you would press and hold down on the keyboard and it would just sort of scroll and like the letters would like kind of come up and dance around and form words and they would jump together and then split apart in more words and stuff. Again, no. Oh. Man, I had a weird childhood. Mom, Dad, I am going to be reaching out to you later today and finding out what happened, okay? So I would utilize whatever tools I had to just encourage my friends or to like put anything out there that I could to say, like, God is awesome. And I just love Jesus and He saves us and it's beautiful. I would read scripture and try to explain it to my friends. When I was in high school, I realized, okay, if I want to be a pastor instead of a lawyer like I'd recently decided, I'm going to have to find a Bible college. And one of my teachers told me about Moody Bible Institute, downtown Chicago, which is pretty close to where we lived. So I applied and by grace got in there and was able to study at Moody Bible Institute. I got my four-year degree done in three and a half years, mostly because I was kind of sick at school. By that point in my life, but also because I just love God's Word. And so my major was biblical language, which means I took two and a half years of Greek and a year of Hebrew, and I just loved opening this up and understanding it and understanding it to the very best of my ability. And I tell you all of that at the beginning of this sermon, not that you should be impressed with me, because you really shouldn't be impressed with me, but so that you know what I mean when I say that today's sermon is really going to be, in some sense, probably more for me than it is for you. Maybe you'll come along with me on this ride of what we're going to encounter in God's Word here. But like, when you get to Luke chapter 15, which is where we're at today, and you encounter these three parables from Jesus, you see that they're aimed at a very particular group of people. And they're a particular group of people that I personally feel, and for a lot of my life have felt a sort of kinship to. Like, I kind of get them on some sense. And I think you'll get it as we start off. I want to show you what we mean. It's the first two verses will kind of give us some context for where these parables come from and who they're directed toward. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and the scribes were the religious elite of that day. They were the religious leaders. As little kids, they would have been all about God's word, about memorizing God's word, about understanding God's word and trying to communicate God's word and really protect God's word and guard it. And they really leveraged that guarding his word in order to kind of create a space for themselves where they felt pretty comfortable and and unfortunately they used it at times to be able to look down on other people and to use as a sense of a metric system right to go okay like if I how do I determine who's a good person well if they can do all this stuff in addition to the law right if they can get all this right then they're a good person and then of course they're the ones choosing what all this stuff is and so they're like okay so I match up to this how great is that that feels awesome and then they look at the people around them like oh man didn't match up to that Mm, That's a shame. What a failure. And as you begin to look at how the Pharisees interacted, this is the picture that's happening here at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. That Jesus has come onto the scene, and he's proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. He's saying it's here. And he's proclaiming that there's forgiveness available. And he's saying, even though you think that you're far off from God, you can actually be close to God. And the people were responding the outcasts and the sinners and the broken were coming and finding restoration and were finding forgiveness and we're experiencing healing. And this was really disrupting the Pharisees' way of doing things because up until that point, they had been more or less in control of how that happens. How do people come to God? Well, let me tell you how kind of a thing, right? Like they get to line it out for you and say, this is, you want to come to heaven? That's fine. You want to come and be close to God? That's cool. Just you come my way. This is exciting. <laughs> Pause for intense moment, right? <laughs> so they were calling him uh, and there was they were really safeguarding that way and, and really leveraging all of that to lift themselves up and puff themselves up and and really even become people that are wealthy and famous and, you know, prestigious within their communities. And so when they saw Jesus coming in and disrupting the whole cycle, they were like, whoa, 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 I don't really like this. But the reality is, if I had been born around that time, odds are I would have wanted to be a Pharisee. I would have wanted and tried really hard to go down that road. I would have been like, oh, I'll memorize whatever part of the law you tell me I have to. I will learn the rules and the laws. I will get it all down. And that's not because I'm like innately really great. It's because there's something inside of me that's not right. There's something inside of me that's a little sick. There's something inside of me that likes to... Identify that I'm better than the people around me. And if you've been following Jesus like I have for like 30 years, or maybe for you it's more like 40, 50, or as one beautiful lady told me at the beginning of or at the end of this last service, 82 years she has been following Jesus. There is a high risk of having this pharisaical cancer, if you will, Growing within you. So my hope today is that as we approach this text, that we can do so with open, humble hands and hearts, that we wouldn't try to protect ourselves. See, what Jesus is about to say to the Pharisees is kind, but it's also a little painful. It's kind and painful in the same way that a surgeon's scalpel is kind yet painful as it cuts through the flesh to get to the thing that's killing you so that the surgeon can pull it out. And so before we go any further, I just want to pray and ask that God would help us because honestly, I know that for me, as the primary listener to this sermon, I am so prone to defend myself as he comes lovingly to remove this cancer from me. I'm so prone to say, no, no, thank you, I'm good but I don't want that. I want him to take it from me. And if you want that too, I'd ask you to join me in prayer right now. So Father, would you please, would you come and would you find us willing subjects of your most loving and kind work, of reaching into our hearts and removing that which threatens to ruin us? Would you please help us, Lord, to not throw up defenses and say, well, that's not me. But instead, allow you to shine your light of truth into us that we can see what's there. And would you please remove it? Would you create something new and fresh and alive and beautiful where it used to be? Would you do it today, miraculously, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize the first couple parables and give you the punchline of both. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time in the third parable. It's the primary part of the chapter. And I think it'll be good today. So pick it up uh, in verse 7 is the punchline. The first parable is about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and he loses one out of the hundred. And so he goes off into the mountains and he lurks and he searches. And eventually he finds his lost sheep. And find, finding the sheep, he puts it on his shoulders and he brings it back. And he gathers his neighbors and friends together and says, Look, my sheep was lost, but now it's found. Let's celebrate. This is amazing. And the punchline again, verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The next parable is really short. It's about a lady who at her home had 10 coins and lost one of the 10. And frantically, she lights a lamp and gets out the broom and sweeps up the home until she finally finds it. When she finds it, she takes it and she calls her neighbors and her friends together and she says, look, I found the lost coin. It was lost, now it's found. Celebrate with me. And in verse 10, we see the punchline to this one where Jesus says, just so I tell you, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then the rest, I want to start reading in verse 11. And I want to encourage you to just kind of shut your eyes, maybe if that helps you focus, if it helps you picture a scenario. But really try to picture this story as it played out. One of the beautiful things about Jesus' parables is that they take these form of stories that are familiar enough for us to visualize. And so I'll start reading. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is an incredible story of redemption, of someone taking all that he could for his own sake, leveraging it for his own pleasure, finding that that path only ended in despair, coming back to the Father. And the Father receiving him with love and grace and compassion. And that's not what we're going to be talking about today. Because that's not the main point of this story. Remember who the people were that Jesus was giving these parables to. Yes, there, there are those in, this, in that space that were listening and going, wow, that was my story. But really, he's aiming this at the Pharisees. Because he's got this desire to hopefully be able to cut out something inside of them that is threatening to kill them. And what we see that follows is really the main point of this entire parable. We'll continue in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for This, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And the parable just ends there in suspense. There's no happy ending where, and then the brother went inside the house and everybody hugged and everything was happy. And I think part of the reason that we get left in suspense is because Jesus' intention in this parable is that We would listen and we would contemplate. That we would think on the relationship that the older brother had with his father. And in that sense, have space to meditate and contemplate on our own relationship with our Heavenly Father. When we look at how this older brother viewed his relationship with his father, it's pretty messed up and distorted pretty quickly you see that there's something not quite right. If nothing else, we see a total lack of empathy in him, don't we? Nowhere here does the older brother go, man, dad, I'm so happy for you. I know that you've been so worked up and sad since my younger brother left. Nothing even close to that. Instead, when he hears that his brother is back... Right, Probably after coming in from a long day of working the fields, doing the stuff that he, his dad had told him to do, that he had learned from him, he was doing it again and again and again. He comes back from working the fields. And what's he hear far off? He hears music. And he's like, oh, that's weird. We don't normally have music happening at night. So he finds one of the hired help, and he says, what's going on? He said, your brother is back. It's great. And So your, your dad is like killing the cow, and we're having a party. And his response internally was anger. It was probably something like, of course he would do something like this. Like, of course, after my brother goes and takes half of the inheritance, he goes away, spends it all, wastes it all, comes back, and what does dad do? Of course he would do this. He would give him more stuff. He would throw a party that is back. And this is, oh, I bet he had some words to say. This is messed up. Now he's eating into my part of the inheritance. <laughs> now he's taking what eventually was going to be mine. <laughs> and I don't even get the benefit of this stuff. And he's all just worked up and he's out on the porch angry. <laughs> and have you ever been to a family reunion where something like that happens? Like one of the cousins gets upset with one of the other cousins and there's just like this really awkward friction and tension where it's like someone's like up in the room and they're like, I'm not coming down. Not after what they did. Are you kidding me? I can't stand to look at them. That kind of stuff. And then, you know, everyone's just like, oh, this is really uncomfortable. Like, someone should do something about it. And slowly everyone kind of looks to whoever's in charge. And, you know, oftentimes it's the dad where he's like, are you kidding? I have to, Ugh. And, you know, in our context, the dad generally would, like, find the person who's misbehaving and kind of get to them and be like, look, what are you doing? You're going to ruin everything. This is a happy day and we're going to be happy get in there and hang out with the family. I mean, and the father in this story could have easily done that, right? He had all the authority to do so, but that's not what he does. Instead, he goes out on the porch and the word it uses is entreat. It's this very soft word. He doesn't leverage his authority at all. Instead, he goes out and he pleads with his son. He says, won't, won't you come in? Won't you abandoned just being out here on the porch like we're celebrating it's a beautiful thing won't you come in and as we really look into this son's response it becomes clear quickly how twisted things had gotten for him how he viewed his relationship with his father just the way he starts off look anytime someone points to you and says look whatever follows probably not going to be very pleasant scary. Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. These aren't the words of a son to a father. They're the words of a servant to a master. It becomes really clear here when we look at this that the older brother, rather than living as a son was living as a servant that he saw his father not primarily someone that he got to be with but as a means to an end, a means to get the stuff that he actually wanted out of life which in this case specifically looks like a young goat so he can have a party with his buddies but sadly for me when I look at that picture of this older brother And how he is looking at his father much as a servant would look at a master. I can't help but see that I have had this same tendency in me, in my relationship with God, for so much of my life. Where I've wasted so much time looking at God as my master. As someone that I do stuff for. It's like, don't I obey your laws? Am I not getting it right? Am I not following you? Well, this is what I do. And underneath the surface of those expressions in my heart is the truth that it's because what I want is for you to give me dot, 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 fill in the blank, whatever that is, that I've served you Almost as if you're some sort of like formulaic genie where as long as I do this and this and this, then I can get the stuff that I actually want in life. But we see the father's response was so personal and relational. It wasn't this contractual relationship. And then he saw in the son's heart this distortion. And he responds just by saying, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And I don't know about you, but I know that I need today to hear that from my Heavenly Father, that gentle reminder (laughs) that He's not looking at me saying, man, won't you pick up the pace and get more stuff done for me? That he's not saying, wow, look at all the ways you failed to impress me this week. That he's not withholding good things from me because I've somehow failed to keep up some end of a contract, right? Like, he's father. And then he looks at me as son, and he looks at you and says, my son, my daughter, you're always with me. And that that's the essence of the difference between what I see in myself here in the older brother and what I actually want, what I see here is a tendency in me to not just be with God as father, but to see myself as having to fulfill some sort of obligation to appease him. Meanwhile, the whole time he says so sweetly and gently, son, you can be with me. And he says, won't you come off the porch Come back inside. Come and celebrate the return of your brother. See, it's scary what this kind of mentality of being more of a servant than a son or daughter does to a person. I know in my own life it's twisted how I see people around me. That instead of seeing someone else who's like life is imploding, instead of seeing them as a son or a daughter who's currently lost and in need of being found, I have a tendency to see that person as just a failure. If they could just get it right, if they could do the kind of stuff that I can do, they wouldn't be in that situation. This is the kind of pharisaical little bits that I see inside of me that I'm like, okay, (laughs) that's scary. And it's not until I get here that I'm like, okay, God, well, gosh, that's in me? Will you please cut this out? I don't want to live like that. I don't want to be going through life trying to keep track of who's better around me. Like, am I holding up to the laws and like performing spiritual holiness better than whoever around me? Like, I don't want to live like that, God. And and I definitely don't want to be frustrated when I see the lost come. I don't want to think to myself, gosh, they got to enjoy so much of their life doing the whatever they wanted to in the world, and then they come back and they still get forgiveness. No, I want the kind of heart that says, wow, my God, it's just so good. He just forgives us all. Every single one of us. It just goes to show you how incredible his love is. And he loves me? Are you kidding me? And so we have this option, really, I think. Like, do we want to live out on the porch? Where we keep this kind of weird, distorted view of our relationship with God. Where he's master and we're servant. And all of the things that come along with that. The distortions, the bitterness, the anger, the frustration. The frustration. I mean, one of the things that can happen here that's so scary to me is that you can actually, over time, get this sense about what church should look like and paint it in such a way that it doesn't actually have hardly anything to do with helping lost people become found people. You can get this idea that, oh, church, what it should be, is like full of these programs that are really good for helping me grow deeper in my faith and it should have all of these different amenities. It's like joining this spiritual Christian club. I don't think that's how Jesus had it pictured as he's describing the church. I think the way he described it is this kind of messy thing that's just constantly moving forward and finding anybody who's like I just I need God so badly and saying, "Yeah, you can have him. Come here. Let me show you to Jesus and then we'll celebrate with you." Who cares what kinds of music we're playing or how loud it gets like we are going to shout We are going to cheer and we are going to celebrate this reality happening in the lives of the lost becoming found. One of the things that makes me a little bit apprehensive about our church as Crossroads Church is that over the last 11 to 12 years, we've been really good at being a church that church people like to attend if that makes sense. I know Matt's said it in a similar kind of way, but we've been really good at creating structures and programs and staffing and all of the things that it's like, man, if you're really familiar with church or if you're already following Jesus, you're going to see Crossroads and go, man, this is pretty cool. But one of the things that shifted for us in the last year is we realized somewhere along the way, we got bad at helping lost people be found. How did that happen? And as a leadership, all of us kind of were like, we're not okay with that. We can't, we can't continue down that road. And so you've probably noticed over the last six months some changes. And I'm guessing for some of you, some of you who I love so much, some of these changes are probably a little uncomfortable or even painful at times. Because we're mixing it up a little bit. But what I need you to know about our desire in mixing it up is that we are absolutely committed to being the -the off-the-porch type of church. The -the -the in-the-house-celebrating-the-lost-having-become-found kind of church. And over the last six months, we've seen how many people get baptized and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. One was literally like, yeah, you guys said text Jesus. Man, I heard you say it like four times, so I thought I would. And then you guys talked to me about Jesus. I was like, oh my gosh, I want to follow Jesus. And for me, I think it's that simple. (laughs) Like we can just be a group of followers of Jesus who follow him together and just radically pull in people as we go. That we can be about that and I guess that's where I want to land, that as I'm asking the question to myself, like, how do I, what do I do about this pharisaical nature in me? Like, what's the first step in helping to, like, get rid of it, to helping open up so that God can just, like, cleanse it, to heal it, to get, make me whole or free me from this poison? And I think that there's, while there's a lot of stuff we could do, I think it gets pretty simple. I think, really, we just need to start most loving what God loves most. I think we need to realign our affections to take a look at what we actually care about most. Like is it our comfort? Is it the stuff that we think we're going to get from God by doing the things that we think he demands of us? Like that genie weird relationship? Or do we decide that we want to love most what he loves most? And when I ask the question, well, what does God love most within his creation? Of all the things that he's made, what does he love most? It's really obvious, really quickly in scripture, that what he loves most is people. What he loves to celebrate is when the lost get found. When those who are broken and far away are drawn near and restored. He loves to celebrate over the one who has come to find him. And I just can't help but say, I-, I want that too for me. I want that for our whole church to be a church full of people who are absolutely committed to celebrating as we work hard, not just for God in terms of trying to get something, but because we love what he loves. And we are just totally connected and committed to his kingdom breaking into this world. And that we're going to do everything we can to put Christ on display. That we're going to love what he loves. And as we love what he loves, we find that our heart slowly changes and that we get rid of this bitterness and the anger. And we can accept the invitation to get off the porch and come inside and Join the party. Because there is a party to be had. What Jesus accomplishes in us when he rescues us is incredible. It really is like what we saw represented in baptism this morning with Emily. Like going from being dead to suddenly being alive. This is something that we can't accomplish on our own. But God made a way when he sent his son Jesus as a man to live and suffer and die on the cross. He made it possible for us to experience forgiveness from our rebelliousness against God and to be reunited into the family, to be brought back and to be called a son or a daughter. And so I want to invite you If you've been following Jesus a long time, spend some time this week. Contemplate what it actually might mean for you. Like where in your heart do you see evidence of being a little bit like the older brother? And man, if you are not yet a part of God's family, but you want to be, we want to walk with you through that experience. We want to help you. We don't want to leave you on your own. And so it's it's a simple thing to follow Jesus but it costs everything at the same time that it's looking at Christ on the cross dying for your sake and it's receiving that in faith and saying you said that if I come by you I can get to the Father and so I'm going to do that I admit that I need you to forgive me and I want you to call the shots in my life to lead me to help me to live with you and if you want to do that this weekend we want to know about it and be connected with you in that process and we made that process easy where you could just text the word Jesus to our number 720-513-1933 so that one of us can actually reach out to you and walk with you day by day as you begin the process of following Jesus in a moment, we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done in our own midst again by taking communion and by singing some songs. But first, I want to pray. And Lord, we just want to thank you. We want to thank you. We want to thank you for what you've given us. By giving us your son, Jesus, it just it staggers me at times that you would look at people like us and decide that you love us so much that you would rescue us thank you for what you've made available through your son father I pray that you would help us help us to not try to defend ourselves today help us not to resist the work that you are doing in our hearts help us to listen to you as you call us to be with you as son or as daughter Please continue to do this work in us this week, in Jesus' name. Amen. Every week at Crossroads, we celebrate communion. It's one of the ways that Jesus gave us to remember what he did. And so we do it to keep Christ's death on the cross paramount. That there could be no mistake what this is all about. And so we know that on the night that our Savior was betrayed, he was at the table with his disciples and he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them all. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember that he gave himself to rescue us as we eat the bread together. And after the dinner, he took the cup and he passed it to them all and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember that he shed his own blood in order that we might be forgiven as we drink from the cup. If in being here today, you feel like you would really love to pray with someone, there are gonna be people back here in the corner in the room that are here just for that explicit purpose, to, to sit and to stand and to pray with you, to join with you as you go through whatever it is that you're at in life. And then if you're connecting with us digitally online, you can also join with people who are there to pray with you. All you gotta do is click that button and they will be in communication with you quickly, ready to pray with you and to remind you that you're not alone and to go to God together. And for us, now we get to celebrate. We get to rejoice. We get to sing. We get to use some music to get a little loud and maybe a little bit rowdy because what Jesus has accomplished for us is crazy. And it would be such a shame for us to sit back with arms crossed and go, meh, this isn't really my style. No, there's a party happening. And we want to join in with the excitement that's got the angels riled up today. So I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet and to enter in a posture that is ready to celebrate. You know, if you got to do a couple like pre-music stretches and like get yourself all warmed up and ready to go, that's fine. Because we got something meaningful that we're about to get into right now.